Well, Happy New Year. Welcome. Yeah, that was good. Happy New Year. There you go. Didn't expect you to respond. That's really good. You've had your coffee. So welcome to 2020. Um, It's a good year ahead of us. I'm glad that you've chosen to worship with us today. Um, I hope you had a meaningful Christmas, and I want to drop you right in the middle of our living room on Christmas morning. So we had a seven-foot Douglas fir that I purchased from Lowe's. Of course, it's a real tree, the kind that God made. Just joking. I'm sorry. This is a standing thing in our family. We're trying to figure out, are we going to go real tree or fake tree? So quick poll, how many of you are real tree only people? Okay, how many of you are like fake tree only people? Oh my gosh, I'm going to lose this one. I just offended everybody. All right, great. So here's what's happening in our living room on Christmas morning. We've got the wrapping paper going. We got presents. We had my brother and sister-in-law and our niece come over. My mom and dad came down from Uniontown. And so we were all huddled in our, our living room on Christmas morning. And it kind of made me wonder, as we're opening all these presents, like what have been the most popular toys for Christmas, say like in the last 40 years? I did some research, and here's what I found. 1977. Star Wars action figures, right? So if you still have one of those in a box, you could probably pay college tuition with a few hours of work on eBay because they're worth quite a bit. Atari, Simon, and Rubik's Cube all showed up in the late 70s. The 80s brought a familiar cast of characters to Christmas morning, including Smurfs, Cabbage Patch Kids, Teddy Ruxpin, and Care Bears. I know that noise. That was the noise of nostalgia. The late 80s, which were my Christmas sweet spot, we saw Nintendo make a back-to-back appearance with the console in 88, the Game Boy in 89. But the 90s opened with my personal favorite, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. There you are. Pogs, Barney, Power Rangers, Beanie Babies all made an appearance in the 90s, along with that little furry guy in 96 that drove every parent crazy. What's his name? Tickle me Um, Can't you like still hear that psychotic laugh in the back of your head? But he was there, 96. So if you fast forward to this year, 2019, if you have girls in your house under 12, the number one Christmas gift for this year was the LOL two-in-one glamper. I don't even know glamping was a word, but apparently that's a thing, right? But this whole trip down memory lane got me thinking, as a kid... How many of these toys that I just wanted so bad really stood the test of time? Now, if you have a running 8-bit Nintendo, I would love to come over your house, and we will play Duck Hunt together, and I will not shoot the dog when he laughs at me, because I miss the ducks. But it really got me thinking, too. How much of not just the the toys that we chase stand the test of time, but how about church? How about things of faith? And I'm talking about marketing and buzzwords and things that in the season sound really great, but they just don't stick. Because if we're going to give our lives to something, or better, to someone, shouldn't it last? See, I believe that there's something deep in the human soul that craves lasting things. This past year, we took a look in the book of Haggai, and we said, man, 
orient your life around lasting priorities. And then we took a look at vintage faith, these things that stand the test of time, these timeless principles of faithful people. And then at Christmas, we just put this thing right in the middle and we said, look, this, this Jesus matters. Very ancient, very lasting things. I believe the church today is on the cusp of one of the greatest missional opportunities for the gospel in recent memory, but it isn't quaint, it isn't cute. It's definitely not comfortable, and it isn't nostalgic. To be the church who makes much of Jesus every day to everyone, we need to be able to distinguish between what's passing and what's lasting. So where does that take us? So this morning, before we head into a three-week series called Resolutions, I want to make a one-week stop in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You can go ahead and turn there if you want in your copy of God's Word. You can flip there on your phone or you can follow along on the screens in just a minute. If you want to be a part of something that lasts, you will love where the Apostle Paul takes us this morning. Paul offers us a view of ministry that's compelling, intimidating, and honestly a little bit scary, but I absolutely love it. In this letter to an ancient church, Paul makes three incredibly gutsy choices that take courage, vulnerability, and faith. These three choices have something in common, and here it is. They teach us that when you narrow your focus, you deepen your impact. When you narrow your focus, you deepen your impact. So, first choice that Paul makes is he chooses his passion. He chooses his passion. Let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what he says. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what's Paul talking about here? When Paul uses the phrase, the testimony of God, that's an interesting phrase. Your translation might say the mystery of God. Both those ideas are accurate. What he's basically talking about is the gospel. So Paul was a church planter. Paul lived and died to take Jesus to places and people who didn't know him yet. And so getting the gospel clear and getting the gospel right was of utmost importance. And so this idea of the testimony of God, simply that Jesus Christ came to save sinners all of whom we are. That's Paul's message everywhere he went, and it's what he led with in Corinth. But what he wants the Corinthian believers to see, and thereby us to see, is not just what he said, but how he said it. And that's really the interesting part of his choice here. First, Paul says what he did not do. Take a look again in verse 1. He says, I didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom. The idea that I want us to latch onto here is that idea of lofty. It means superiority or excellence or better than. An elevated position. It's used to talk about kings and princes and people in authority. It's also used to talk about mountain peaks and like the high point of, of a city. And so Paul's saying, do you know what it's like when somebody talks down to you? When somebody condescends to you, it's like, that's not how I wanted to come. That's not what I was about. That phrase might be loosely translated, I didn't come with my nose in the air. I didn't come with my degrees. I didn't come with a holier-than-thou attitude. Make sense? Now, here's why that's important. 
when it comes to the gospel, Paul understands something that every pastor and every church feels. And here it is. The temptation to be impressive can undermine our commitment to be faithful. In first century Corinth, the way to gain influence was being a public speaker. It was actually a full-time job. You get paid to do this. And the way to be a good public speaker was to be really flashy and creative and attention-grabbing. Those two words that follow the word lofty, what's he say? He says, my speech and my wisdom. Those describe the verbal skills and the mental abilities of a speaker. And so if you were a professional orator in first century Corinth, your job was to be really brilliant and really well-spoken. If you were a mover and shaker, these were like the two pistols in your holster. You had to be really, really creative with your words, and you had to be really, really insightful with your thoughts. And Paul takes a look at this, and he goes, I chose not to do that. That's a very interesting thing. He's going directly against the fashion of his day. Now, it's hard for us to imagine how shocking this would have been to his audience. Like, Paul, don't you want influence? Here's how this works. And Paul goes, no, it'd be like LeBron riding in a game in a taxi. Or like Paul McCartney showing up to a concert in an 89 Honda Civic hatchback. It's like, this is, not, this is not how this is supposed to go. Like, you're the man. Bring it. Paul takes what's expected, what's encouraged, and even celebrated, and he rejects it, and he points to something deeper. Now stop for a second. Paul's an eloquent guy. I mean, he wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. And he's certainly smart, He's a trained lawyer who was educated by the highest minds in his culture in the day. He's no dummy. And so what's he saying here? Is he saying, don't be creative, don't be innovative, don't be... Is he saying, just accept this, don't think about it. What we value here is blind obedience without thought. No, that's a cult. And that's not what he's saying here. He's not saying, don't mind the riches of the gospel. Don't go deep into the truths of Christ. Ignore all that stuff. Stay surfacy. He's trained in three languages. Paul was a brilliant guy. That's not what he's saying. What he's talking about is our human proclivity to let what is interesting distract from what is essential. He's not pointing to a deficiency in his own abilities. He's critiquing the excesses of the Greek philosophers and orators in his day. It's like when he says, I'm doing this and this alone. He says, when it comes to the gospel, I'm taking a very different path. When you narrow your focus, you deepen your impact. So if that's not Paul's passion, what is? Take a look in verse 2. Here's what he says. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Three parts to that verse we want to get our heads around. First off, Paul's decision. You see how he said it? He goes, I decided. Or your translation may say, I resolved. It's a big fancy Greek word. It means I decided. I resolved. That's a really important thing for us to get at because this idea of a singular passion doesn't come by accident. It's the most unnatural thing for us to do as humans to restrict our vision to what is important. 
to live for Jesus and him alone. So before we go any further, we need to understand that everything that follows here from Paul is an act of will. It's an act of concentration. It's a measure of force, discipline. Paul could have easily slipped over into the lane of his contemporaries, but he says, no, I'm staying here. And then he says something else about his passion. He says, I resolved or I decided while I was among you. Where does his passion live? He says, I was among you. I was with you. And so this is Paul going, look, you want to learn more about the gospel? You want to learn more about Jesus? Awesome. You don't have to come to the marbled halls of the temple anymore. You don't have to come to these palatial colonnades where the philosophers hang out. Why? Because I'm with you. We take that at the North Canton Chapel to say that we take the gospel where we live, we work, and where we play. Have you ever heard that before? What that means is Jesus is just as important at your kid's soccer game as he is right here. Jesus matters just as much at the grocery store checkout as he does in worship on Sunday morning. And that's what Paul is driving at. There's an amongness. And then he gives us another layer to this, his passion, as he said, nothing else except, what's he say? Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this is the crux of Paul's passion, this choice. It's like he's cleared all the table. He says, nope, this. Let's stop for a second. If you go through the Starbucks drive-thru and you only ever order one thing, you must love that one thing a lot. Or if you're like Mandy and I and you only ever binge watch one show on Netflix, you must really love that one show. That must be pretty incredible, right? That's what Paul's doing here. He's restricting everything. He's narrowing his focus so he can deepen his impact. Now let's get out of the clouds for a second. If you want to make much of Jesus every day to everyone, I want to give you one way right up front to do that. Sometimes I take these applications and we put them at the end. Today they're sort of peppered throughout. Okay? And I know this sounds really old-fashioned and it sounds like even a little mystical, but here it is. In conversation, use the name Jesus. I know that sounds so old and stodgy and weird But here's what I mean. If you're going to narrow your focus to deepen your impact, it's a good idea to clarify what you are narrowing your focus to. Because I don't want people to know me as just another religious person. I don't want them to know me as a moral person. I don't want them to know me as even a good dad or a good pastor or a good husband, although those things are very true of me, I hope, and I want those to be characteristic of my life. But deeper than that, down to my shoes, I want people to know me as somebody whose life has been forever changed by the power of Jesus. And the only way that gets connected is if I talk about him. It's that old song, right? Kings and kingdoms may all pass away, but there's something about that name. So you want to share the gospel with your neighbors? Don't invite them to church. Sounds weird, right? Like, you can. Of course you can invite them to church. But invite them into your living room first. Because you love your neighbors way more than I'm ever going to love them because you know them way better than I'm ever going to know them. And then take Jesus with you. Paul makes his passion abundantly clear. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? He is the deepest well of mercy. He is the strongest grip of grace. There is no one like him. And so Paul makes it clear, this 
is who I am about. And the world doesn't know him. So say his name. This is the first choice that Paul makes is he chooses his passion. He chooses his passion. I want to stop for a second and reflect in this room together. If you're a Christian, okay, so if you're here this morning and you walk with Jesus closely and you're seeking to honor him in your life, right now you're going, yes, everything you just said, I'm all about that. What's next? What do I do? Well, I hate to disappoint you, but these next two choices are the hard ones. Most Christians stop here. We are all about the sufficiency of Jesus, but it's what Paul does next and what he chooses to do now that Christians have a hard time with. You ready? Here we go. The second choice we've got to make if we're going to narrow our focus to deepen our impact is we have to choose our posture. We have to choose our posture. Take a look in verse 3. Here's what Paul says. I was with you, there it is again, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. This is where Paul gets intensely, courageously personal. If his passion is, I choose Christ alone, this second choice, his posture says, here's how that looks. Notice the phrase, with you, again. Again, because he's coming, I'm in there. I'm among you. But three words right off the top, again, we've got to get our head around. First off, you saw him, weakness. Now, this could mean a lot of things. We know from his other letters that Paul was not a very impressive man, actually. He was a small man with poor eyesight. He didn't have bravado. He was sick a lot. He was bashful. He was easily intimidated. If Paul was a freshman going out for football, the coach would go, water boy. And so Paul was naturally a very weak man. Physically and personally, he's not your CEO profile. He's weak. Secondly, fear. I came to you in weakness. I came to you in fear. Now this one's fairly straightforward. The idea of proclaiming the gospel in cosmopolitan Corinth was a lot like saying, hey, let's join hands and pray before sitting down to a table of blackjack in Vegas. It made no sense. Like, what is that doing here? And so he's very easily intimidated to go, this is going to be tough. Weakness, fear, and then third thing he says, not just trembling, but much trembling. I love that. It's like he has to crank it a little bit further. Much trembling. Paul's physical limitations and his emotional tensions manifest themselves in what we would just call today anxiety. And he goes, look, here's who I am. I'm not going to hide it. This is me. Those two words, fear and trembling, they show up a lot in Paul's letters. They're like his Instagram bio, the top line of his resume. They're something he cannot get away from. And this is how Paul presents himself to this church. And it's how he presents himself to this city. And then you add to that that in Corinth, Paul was a tent maker. He literally made tents to supplement his meager income, which sounds all cool and noble. But in first century Corinth, tent makers were lower than slaves. Nobody wanted to be a tent maker. So this isn't Paul making lattes in some cool coffee shop. This is Paul digging ditches for sewer lines. And all these images 
All these feelings swirl and combine to paint the picture of a man who, at least in the eyes of the average Corinthian, was without strength, without means, without privilege, without ability, and without influence. And you know that had to mess with him. If I had to summarize or distill Paul's feelings here, I came to you burdened and I stayed with you sleepless. It's important to see what Paul's doing here, though. Paul isn't being just overly vulnerable, courageously gutsy, or even risky. He's calling the Corinthian church out, and he's saying, I came to you this way because before God, we are all this way. And if you're going to make a difference for Christ in your world, you've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. But underneath all of that, here's this truth. The gospel regards worldly liabilities as kingdom virtues. I'll say that again because maybe you need to hear that. The gospel regards worldly liabilities as kingdom virtues. And that's really good news for all of us because we are insufficient. We are not enough. We are the knee shakers. When the weight of the gospel causes your knees to shake, the answer isn't straighten up and get tough. The answer is fall down and get humble. And this is how God deals with his people all the time. Earlier in this letter, Paul even says, he says, think about what you were. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were noble. Not ma- Why? Because God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He'll write another letter to the Corinthian church. It's called 2 Corinthians. Fairly appropriate where he says, you are like clay pots with cracks all over them and weak spots. God made you that way. Way back in Deuteronomy 7, when God even talks about his people, he says, I didn't choose you because you were an awesome nation. I didn't choose you because you were the strongest. I actually chose you because you're the weakest. What's his point? I chose you just because I chose you. And I love you just because I love you, period. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves here, but think about how this conversation sets the stage for a larger conversation about God's grace. Because if I can earn God's favor, if I think I deserve it, if I think I'm worthy of it, then grace can't be a gift. The gospel, it would seem, does not come to the noble, but to the needful. And if that's true, then the extension of the gospel does not flow through strong people who are doggedly invincible, but through weak people who are courageously vulnerable. I don't know if you know the name Brene Brown, or if you've read any of Brene Brown's books. She's a social researcher, and she wrote a book on vulnerability called The Gifts of Imperfection. And she noticed something that speaks with such gospel clarity, it's amazing. I don't think she'd say it that way, but I will. She sought out to study what prevents vulnerability in people. Why can't we be vulnerable? What is that? Not surprisingly, two things. Disconnection and pain. Here's what she discovered. If you ask people to describe a time where they felt really connected with other people, we actually can easier, more easily access a time where we felt disconnected. If you ask for a time when we felt really close or we felt really appreciated, most of us can actually more quickly access a time where we felt unappreciated or far away or excluded. And so the research took another step. Here's what we do with that pain and that disconnection. 
We do the only human thing. We numb ourselves or at least isolate, distance, or insulate ourselves from potential hurt or pain, and that's natural. But here's her biggest finding of all. You ready for this? As humans, we cannot selectively numb emotions. Here's what she says. When we numb the painful emotions, we also numb the positive emotions. Now, what does she mean, and what does that have to do with what Paul is talking about here? Simple. It means that while vulnerability costs, invincibility costs more. Do you follow that? If you and I work ourselves to a place where we no longer feel pain, we won't feel pleasure either. If we get to a point where we no longer feel sadness, we'll no longer feel joy. If you and I seek to become invincible, we will actually become inhuman. Don't become inhuman because you're imperfect. Let those weaknesses and imperfections drive you to Jesus. Now, here's the thing. We've all been there. This fear, weakness, much trembling. Maybe not to the extent that Paul has, but everybody in this room knows what, it's feel like, know what it feels like to not be enough at something, right? Like not thin enough, not smart enough, not courageous enough, not manly enough, not well-spoken, not intelligent enough, not whatever enough, right? Everybody in this room, we know what that feels like. And so here comes the gospel again. If you feel like you're not enough, it's because you aren't. And that's a good thing. How does Paul lead like this? Weakness, fear, and much trembling? How is that something? Simple and very difficult. He's overwhelmingly secure in his identity in Christ. Our job is not to project a perfect image. Our job is to point to a perfect Jesus. And so here's where the gospel takes a much different road than any social science or all the secular research because everything out there tries to convince you that you are enough and that you are worthy. And the gospel says, you can't be enough. That job's already taken. That's Jesus' job. Paul talks about this all the time. 2 Corinthians, again, in chapter 12. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. And so Paul goes, that's it then, I'm good. Who is Paul's enough? Jesus. So again, not just in a ministry strategy, but in his personal walk, when you narrow your focus, you deepen your impact. There is no such thing as a self-sufficient Christian. Thinking on my own weaknesses, here's what I've discovered, just to lower the wall a bit. God will not use the Brannon I pretend to be. He only uses the one who leans on him. And it's the same for you. So if you want to be used by God, one word for you. Gospel your heart against the shame that you tie to your weaknesses. If you are a Christian, and that's not everybody, if you are a Christian then your sin has been dealt with. It is paid for. If you know Jesus, what that means is the darkest part of your story could be all the light that somebody else needs to understand their story. What if, dream with me for a minute, what if God's biggest plans for his church are to lead the way in vulnerability and foster a kind of deep connection that's only possible because of the security that is ours in the gospel? Think about that. 
What if all these walls of self-protection that we put up are the very things that God wants to drop so he can bring revival? I think that's so close to the heart of God here. So close to what Paul is saying. Why is that important? This choice of posture. Verse 4. Paul makes a third choice that changes everything. He chooses his purpose. Look in verse 4. Here's what he says. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? Here's verse 5. So that, don't miss that super critical two-word phrase, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul does something he's super famous for. He uses a very familiar clause. It's called a purpose clause in grammar, and it's that so that. This is Paul tipping his cards and going, look, here's what I want you to see. Here's why I chose my passion and my posture, because I got a much bigger purpose behind it. Here's what I want to be about. And he says, I don't want your faith to rest on men. I want it to rest on God. What's he saying? A gospel that rests on anyone but Christ is a gospel that is too weak to save you. And so Paul is on to something that shows incredible leadership, insight, and humility. So here's the story. In the 1880s, a group of American tourists went to London, and their friends back in the States were super excited for them, and they said, here's the thing, when you go to London, you're going to get there, you're going to have a Sunday. On Sunday, we want you to check out two preachers, and then come back and bring a report, okay? So the group goes, first time they're there, Sunday morning, they go to Joseph Parker's church. Now, Joseph Parker, I don't think you know his name, but that's Okay. Joseph Parker was known for his poetic, extemporaneous speaking. He was known as the poet of preachers. And so when the group sat down, two minutes into the sermon, they realized this dude deserves his reputation. They were blown away. So one guy turns to his friend and he says, I do declare it must be said, for there is no doubt that Joseph Parker is the greatest preacher that ever was. High praise. Like, selfishly, I'd like to hear that. That's kind of cool. But then something else happens. They were so excited, they want to come back Sunday night to hear Joseph Parker's evening address, but they remembered what their friends had said. They got to check out this other guy called Charles Spurgeon. Didn't know who he was, but they show up at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and in typical Spurgeon form, he blew the roof off the place And at the end, one guy turned to his friend and he says, I do declare it must be said, for there is no doubt, Jesus Christ is the greatest Savior who ever was. And that is the point of preaching. And that is the point of the gathered church. It's exactly what Paul means when he says, I don't want you to have a faith that rests on men. I want you to have a faith that rests on God. The goal of the church is not entertainment. I don't know if you figured that out. The goal of the church isn't to give something somebody likes or or to provide something uplifting. The goal of the gathered church, and preaching specifically, is to lift up the sufficiency of Jesus with one foot in the world and one foot in the word and say, here, here he is. And that's my heart, and I hope you hear that, but that's also what Paul's trying to get the Corinthians to understand. He's giving them an example to narrow their focus You deepen your impact. And so where do we go from there? Where do we get off track with our purpose? It's it's worth thinking about for a minute because at first glance we're all like, yeah, that, I'm in, let's do that. Where do we get off track? 
I think there are three elements to living on purpose, and I think these might be helpful, especially as we head into a new year. So you got, Paul, you got Paul's passion, you got his posture, and then here his purpose. Three things. One, in order to live on purpose, you've got to have a right view of yourself. Maybe you've heard this statement before. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Isn't that good? I think it's tremendously centering. Because you and I, we err in one of two ways. Either we think of ourselves too highly, we think of ourselves too lowly. Either we love ourselves or we hate ourselves. And the truth is obviously in the middle. We are neither extreme. We are sinners loved by God. Now here's how that connects to purpose. We said it last week. Only when I rest in who God says I am can I do what God calls me to do. So push that a little bit forward. You are not who you think you are. You are who God says you are. So here's the question. Can you rest in your identity according to the gospel, or are you fighting for significance and security? And only you can answer that, because it's in the deepest part of your soul. Second thing, for a right view of purpose. You've got your right view of yourself, and then secondly, a right view of God. Here's a sobering thought. You don't have to come up with a purpose for your life. Why? God's already got one. You don't have to invent this thing. The purpose of everybody's life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, there's nuances that that purpose can take, but that is the goal of life. Here's where we trip up when we put ourselves at the center of life. Purpose is whatever I want it to be. And so we sail and careen through life like a ship without a rudder, just going, I don't know, do I want to be rich? Do I want a big house? Do I want this? Do I want that? What do I want right now? Christmas toys, 30 years later, ultimately unsatisfying. We reach the end of our life and we go, hmm, I sure was busy. And so the second question is it relates to this one. Are you willing to trade your purpose for you for God's purpose for you? Third element of living on purpose. A right view of yourself, a right view of God, and a right view of others. I love how Paul, by implication, spoke to the Corinthians here. He doesn't really mention them by name, right? He doesn't really drive hard at them, but he gives a nod to his hopes and his dreams for them. He wants to give them what? A faith that lasts and he's willing to take on whatever limitations, whatever burdens, whatever stresses. Why? Because the people of Corinth have become incredibly precious to him. Not as notches on his evangelistic belt, but because he deeply wants them to know the love of God. And so here's the question. Who are you willing to suffer for if it means they learn Jesus? If you have a right view of others, here's the deal. You know it. It usually means suffering. And if you're a parent, it could mean serving your kids in a way that just drains you. But if your kids learn Jesus, it's worth it. If you've got a tough family member, it could mean apologizing. But it's worth it if they learn grace. Beneath all of that, we've all got to come to a place where we agree with God and reorient our life to say, they are worth Jesus. Zooming out a bit, 
I hope you love what we do here at the North Canton Chapel. I hope you love our, our, like our preaching from the stage. I hope you love our expression of worship. I hope you love our children's ministries and our adult ministries and our student ministries and our missions opportunities. But I hope you love Jesus more. Speaking on behalf of our staff, and I think this is your heart too, I want the North Canton Chapel to be here for one reason and one reason alone because I believe God wants us to reach the lost and he wants us to equip the found. We don't need to be inspiring and charismatic. It's too exhausting. Let's just be gripped by grace. I don't want to be impressive. We just want to be changed. I want to know Jesus and love him more today than I did yesterday. And if that's you, success. Because you know what else? Believe, I believe that buried in, this, in Paul's third choice around his purpose is one of the most compelling evangelistic strategies possible. If it's true that a gospel that rests on anybody other than Christ is a gospel that's too weak to save, I believe the opposite is true. A gospel that makes much of Jesus is a gospel that is unstoppable. You see how Paul's purpose and passion and posture toward the Corinthians is so close to what we want to be about here at the chapel? We want to be a a church who makes much of Jesus every day to everyone, period. So for those of you too... If you're just checking out the North Canton Chapel and this is like, hey, new year, wonder what this place is about. Maybe you came to one of our Christmas services or you've heard about what God's been up to around here. I think it's very valuable for you just to see our playbook and go, here, this is what we're about. If you haven't figured it out, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. My hope for you is that when you hear these words from the Apostle Paul that resonates somewhere deep inside of you and you go, yeah, me too. We're not fad chasing. This isn't about gimmicks. We connect ancient things to our lives in very meaningful ways. When you narrow your focus, you deepen your impact. So one last word before we close. Here's where this gets exciting to me. Those three choices that Paul talks about. He talks about his passion, his posture, and his purpose. These are Paul, and I hope they're true of me, and I know they're true of our staff, But can you imagine what's possible when a whole church considers those three things? That can be absolutely incredible. So Teddy Ruxpin is sitting quietly in a box in the corner of somebody's attic. I have no idea where my Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle collection ended up. Probably at a yard sale somewhere. I can't remember the last time I used a Nintendo blaster. But I'm very, very excited for what God has in store for us this year. And I hope you are too. He is so faithful and he is so good. And I'm glad you're here. Let's pray. Father, we just say thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus. He uses an ordinary man like Paul in a really dark and hard place like Corinth that your kingdom can go forward. Thank you for showing us that it's possible that if we cling to Christ, we can't go wrong. Father, we love you. You are so good and you are so faithful. And so we can say our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. All we have is Christ. And so we can praise you freely because you gave him so freely to us at great cost to yourself to rescue rebels. Father, we say thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.